Amen. Good morning. I just want to clarify, I don't know if you guys heard it, but I'm pretty sure I heard Angelo exhort our children to sell their crosses for money. <laughs> I didn't exhort them to do that. I thought that was hilarious. Well, how did you start that story? I'm not telling you how to make money, but I love it. Good, good. And our Sunday school teachers can deal with that appropriately. That's it. Yes. Every member ministry, priesthood of believers. Yeah. All right, I think I just made things worse. All right. Well, it is Palm Sunday, and it is a week that uh, climaxes, brings to an end this, uh, this Lenten season. Palm Sunday today, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. Um, spectacularly, amazingly Easter Sunday. Uh, we look forward to that. And, and all, all leads to Easter Sunday. Uh, and so we, but we come to our text this morning um, out, of, out of Luke. Uh, and it, it's, it's, it's the beginning of the end of Jesus' uh, ministry. And, and he's moving toward his death, as you've heard this morning. Uh, and, and it prepares us for what lays ahead. Um, so let's, let's read our text this morning. It's, I'm in Luke 19. We're going to pick up in verse 28 and read to verse 44. This is the NIV version. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As, as they were untying the colt, the, its owners asked him, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and you and the children within your walls they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Lord, we, we thank you for this word. We pray now, Lord, as we, as we consider it together, uh, would you be our teacher? Would you prepare our hearts to hear from you, Lord? I pray that anything that I say that is not um, of you, that is not uh, uh, a truth that you want us to hear, Lord, we pray that it would be quickly forgotten. 
And, and at the same time, we pray that anything that is from you, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you, would you bring it near to our hearts? Would you awaken faith in us this morning? Would you remind us of what is true? And we pray as we consider this, Lord, we want to be captivated by you. Would you do that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the ways that you, if, if you're interested in telling a good story, one of the ways you do it is you have to create tension. A story without tension is a story not really worth paying attention to. And, and one of the ways you do this is you tell the audience something that the characters in the story don't know. So, for instance, if, uh, if behind me the, uh, the, the, the screen started to fall just ever so slightly and I didn't know it, you would experience tension. Uh, because I would be out to lunch, and you would all know something that I don't know. Uh, this, is, this is how stories work. So think about Star Wars. One of the sources of tension in Star Wars is that everybody knows who Luke is uh, and who his father is, except for Luke. And, and so you experience the tension of Luke's character because you know something um, about Luke that he doesn't know about himself. And every good story does this. Uh, you'll notice that you really can't... It, it's hard to tell a good one, even a fairy tales... Um, the, the audience has to know something that the characters don't know. Uh, and and this, is, this is, probably this works because this is true of our lives. Uh, this is a feature of the lives we live. Uh, we all know what it's like to have somebody in our life who, who should know something that they don't know. We know something that they should know or see something that they should do that they don't see they should do. Uh, this is actually one of the major features of being a parent, right? Um, you look at your children, and you know in your mind what they should do, and, and they experience, uh, you experience that narrative tension. They have no idea that they should do it, or they, so they simply refuse to do it. Uh, and, and, but, but the hard thing, of course, so we all have those people in our life, or those countries, or those political parties, or, um, or those organizations, or those bosses who... Who, shouldn't, who should follow the good, the good wisdom that we have, but yet don't. And we live in that tension. But, but the harder thing is to then look back on ourselves and realize that, do you realize you also are the subject of that same dynamic? Everyone in your life has things about you that you should be doing that you don't see. <laughs> That's a little harder to take. Uh, I actually... Hey, don't do this. I asked my kids on the way over to church, what am I blind to about myself? It's a bad idea. Don't do that. Uh, they laughed and, um, and then proceeded to tell me some things. Um, but because, and, and it's, it's just good to, to sit with that for a moment. Um, you are all the subject of that. There are people in your life who love you, and they see things that you are blind to about yourself. And, and, and not only things that you're blind to, but things that keep you from having peace in your life. And, and the, the good news of Holy Week, one of the, the many parts that, that make Holy Week such a, a, beautiful, um, a beautiful presentation of the truth of God, is, is that it reminds us that, that even though we're blind, God still gives us every measure of peace that we need. We are not, because of Jesus Christ, we are not stuck in our blindness. We are not stuck in our blindness. Uh, we are not stuck in ourselves. Your circumstances don't own you. Your relative success in life is not the last word about you. Your ability to see yourself fully 
is, is not the defining thing that's about you, that's true about you because of who Jesus Christ is. And yet we also know that we continually close our eyes to what is true. We continually close our eyes to the truth of who Jesus is and the peace he offers. Um, and so in this text that we read this morning, we see Jesus on the edge of a city that is full of blindness. And yet we know that, that what Christ offers is to, to he meets a city's measure of blindness with a king's measure of peace. It's a city's measure of blindness he meets with a king's measure of peace. So, so how do we see that here? Uh, just for some, some background to, to build this out a little bit more, Luke has been for 10 chapters now uh, paving the story of Jesus coming toward Jerusalem. 10 long chapters. In chapter 9, he sets out for Jerusalem, and it takes 10, chap- 10 chapters for him to get there. It's a long journey, uh, but that final destination is continually reminded uh, throughout those 10 chapters. And when he, he, we're at the moment then, so he arrives at this climactic moment. He arrives at the edge of the city. Uh, It's a long journey. I've read that the the journey to go where Jesus went that's described in this text, um, it's quite an ascent. Uh, You're out of breath by the time you get there. But when you arrive at the top and you can see over Jerusalem, it's a breathtaking view. Uh, And he arrives at the city he's been intending to go, and he's gripped by grief, and he's gripped by tears as he looks upon the city. Uh, Jerusalem, the the name Jerusalem means city of peace. And Jesus looks over the city and and discerns it is a city that tragically has no peace. It's utterly blind to the the peace that he brings. And it's a city that's representative of of Israel as a whole. So um, there's nothing particularly... Uh, evil that is different or blind about Jerusalem. It's a representation of, of, of a people. Uh, the temple is there. It's the center of Jewish life. Um, and, and so all through these 10 chapters are leading up to this moment, the sense of blindness that Jesus speaks of here as he sees the city. Uh, it's, and, and more than that, so there's this journey going on, but also there's this growing tension. The, the, the section of this travel is often called the gospel of the outcast. Uh, There's so many stories in these preceding 10 chapters that talk about uh, uh, parables and and miracles that are reaching people who are on the margins of life. And and there's the lost parables that come just before that, and that finally culminates just before the section we read in the story of Zacchaeus. And and so so as as we'll see here, Jesus is reaching out to the outcast. creates some tension with, with, with the Pharisees and with, with many people around him. They don't like his involvement with, with those on the margins. Just, uh, so, so the city of Jerusalem is blind to the peace Jesus brings. So wh- why? What's, what's going on there? Why does Jesus say this? What, what is he seeing? Uh, part of the blindness is Jesus is bringing the rain that God promised in the Old Testament uh, but he's bringing it in a way that is totally unexpected in some ways. He, he's busting up the categories. He's fulfilling the categories and yet that, that are proclaimed, that are prophesied, and yet he overflows them. He, he moves almost uh, super fulfillment beyond what they even imagined. And as I said, one of the main ways the Gospel of Luke demonstrates this is showing how Jesus spends his time pursuing people on the margins of society um, while rebuking those who are at the center of religious life. Uh, at, you think about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus 
is, is despised among his people. Why? He's a tax collector. He's an instrument of Roman occupation. He's turned on his people. He's the equivalent of what would be a Ukrainian informant to the Russians. Right? He, he's, he's an outcast among his people, and yet he's fulfilling a role. And, and yet Jesus notices him. And, and in, the, in the chapter just before, or I'm sorry, early in this chapter, his encounter with Zacchaeus ends with Jesus saying this, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And so Jerusalem does not recognize the peace of Jesus because, not just because he does it in unexpected ways, but because he's redefining peace around himself. Jesus is redefining peace around himself. Uh, for the religious leaders of the day, peace was defined by Torah, by the law. And Jesus comes and says, I fulfill Torah. I am Torah realized perfectly in and of myself. All the law points to me and is made beautiful and clear in me. And so in other words, what Jesus is saying is, apart from me, you are lost. You can have no peace apart from me. Jesus is presenting a shock to the system. Uh, we, we've all experienced something unexpected uh, in our lives in one way or another. Uh, and, and when we experience the unexpected or the shocking, we're presented with a choice. Uh, we can embrace it, accept it, or, or um, willfully close our eyes to it. Uh, one, of, one of the things that I have this wrestling with match every year, uh, well, not every year, but on occasion, uh, my family goes to Maine. Uh, and and I, what I love about Maine is I hate the beach, and I love, I love a, a rocky coast. You know, I, I, I don't like the heat. I don't like the sun on the beach. I don't know why people like that. Um, but, I, man, Maine is my cup of tea. You know, take me to the, the cliffs of Ireland. I'm happy. Um, but, but part of the problem that is you want to swim, uh, and Maine water is not Jersey Shore water. Um, it's cold. And, and every year you've had this experience when you go into cold water, um, you, you have this moment where you're, you know, the water's sort of up to here, and you have that critical decision. Am I going to keep taking the steps, or am I going to bail? Right? Am I going to accept this shocking cold and just dive in, um, or am I going to, to, to flee? Uh, and only because my children are there, probably, do I ever do I dive in. A uh, little peer pressure goes a long way. Um, but, but, uh, but my denial of, of the coldness of the water doesn't change that it's true. Uh, and, and what Jerusalem is experiencing, the blindness that they have, is, is a sustained form of willful blindness. They've seen what Jesus is saying. They've seen who he is. For all his miracles, for all his teaching, all the, think of the life that he brings everywhere he goes, everyone who touches Jesus, and yet they've closed their eyes to, to what he says about himself. This shock to the system. They've closed their eyes to him, and they've said, they said, we will not see it. Christ is saying, apart from me, you are lost. Apart from me, you will have no peace and Jerusalem closes their eyes. It's a city's measure of blindness. And so it's before this whole city that Jesus weeps. Uh, a city can produce many things collectively. It might feel strange to think about a city producing blindness. 
Uh, did you know that Philadelphia's top export this past year? Anybody know what it is? Liquefied propane. That was news to me. We, we're, a great, we're a great city at producing uh, liquefied propane, apparently. Uh, a city can produce many things, right? We, we produce many goods. We also, um, sort of in a, in a very different light, we also happen to produce the highest level of child poverty of any major city in the country. Philadelphia, uh, collectively, we have, we have produced such circumstances. Now, Jerusalem is a city that produces many things, but what Jesus sees is their collective blindness to the peace he brings. And, and we, know, we know what it is to willfully close our eyes to what we need. Uh, so, simple, we're closer to the new year, so that, that's, that, that's fresh, right? The effort of, of New Year's resolution is often an effort to, to identify things that we know are good for us, and yet we can't bring ourselves to do. So, we know... Physically, I am, I am better off if I exercise more. Uh, I, I'm, I'm better off mentally and emotionally if I, if I spend a whole lot less time on social media. I, my relationships, I know, will be more healthy and grow and, and will, be, will be more godly and loving if I say hard things in love to people in my life. Right? We know this is true. <laughs> And yet, uh, we, we keep things at a distance. Uh, there are things in our lives that declare to us, apart from this, you won't have wholeness. And yet, we're, we're quite familiar with, with closing our eyes to those things. And so the declaration of Jesus Christ is, apart from him, brothers and sisters, you will know no peace. Apart from Christ, you will have no peace. Peace with God, peace with one another. And like Jerusalem, uh, we, we can take this on. Our, our, our blindness is collective to this. Our, our unwillingness to see this is collective. Uh, there's a city measure of blindness in every family and in every community. We pass it around and we reinforce it. Uh, we, we pass this idea that we can find peace outside of Christ with one another. It is, it is individual, but it's also communal. That's what Jesus is looking at now. He's seeing how, how it's, a, it's an effort that we reinforce with one another in the way that we, the way that we live our lives. Uh, uh, perhaps one way to think about this is actually just to, to think about... Um, the way your family works, and the way your family uh, can, can share in this blindness. Uh, so th I've recently come across um, a process called a, a, a geneogram. Uh, I'm not saying the word enneagram, so I'm not talking about your number. Uh, I'm talking about uh, uh, a geneogram, a, a look at your family history to, to discern uh, the, the pattern of, of your family and how you got to be who you are. Uh, so let me show you what I mean. I have an example, um, and it's probably too small, but um, I'll, I'll try and talk you through it a little bit. Um, I was tempted to show you mine, and I thought, I'm, I don't know if I'm ready for that, <laughs> uh, but I'd be glad to share it with you one-on-one -on -one if you'd like. But basically, here, here's what a geneogram is. You chart your family history as far as you can go back, and you begin to notice, in, it's like a family tree, right? So family tree, but, but part of the process is, you, you then also track and notice where 
is there distance? Where is there conflict? Where are there abusive or broken relationships? Uh, and you also begin to take a note of earthquake events, uh, events in your family that have been disruptive. So you can see this example, a sister dying in a car accident, a dad losing a job, uh, somebody dropping out of college. You can see how relationships become frayed and, and how uh, a grandfather and a grandmother's relationship can then be spilled over into the next generation and, and how they relate to their children and so on. Uh, and, and so what, what does this demonstrate? Well, it, it demonstrates, um, at, at the very least, uh, many things. And why I would encourage you to do it is you begin to get a sense of what a city's measure of blindness can look like. Uh, all of us here, uh, if you were to do this, like Jerusalem, have generations of brokenness and blindness to Christ's peace that you carry with you. Uh, you don't relate to your family because you decided and just woke up one day and decided that's how I'm going to relate to them. It, it is handed off to you. And whether or not, let me just say this, if you are somebody sitting here saying, well, I know I am never going to be like my dad. Uh, and that could be because, like, you just rather have a person, different personality take, or that could be because you have a very abusive or toxic relationship with your dad. But the truth is you're still then defining yourself as not being someone else, aren't you? And so part of what I'm trying to get at and help you see here is that, that our, our blindness is communal. It is shared. And it grows over time with each generation. And what emerges is, is layer upon layer of competing ideas about what will and will not bring us peace. And we share and pass these on to one another. And when they fail, uh, we have no recourse, right? In these family histories, we have no recourse. When, when, our, when our visions of what will bring us peace fail, abuse and neglect and withdrawal and selfishness emerge and greed. And, and like in the, in, in the passage, a destruction of a city comes to pass. And so part of Jesus' grief is that the nature of sin is not just that we need a little nudge, a little course, course correction uh, now and again, uh, or even that sin is just an individual problem alone, that, that if I could just get myself together, I could solve the sin problem of the world. Like Jerusalem, ours is a city's measure of blindness to the peace of Christ. And, and I, I just want to, just, just as an aside, um, some of you might be uncomfortable with the, uh, with the focus on a communal notion of sin, that we share in it together. And, and I would just invite you to see one of the, one of the ways, is sort of as, a, as an infomercial on how to read the scripture um, and how sermons work and how we, we think about scripture together as a community, uh, that there's something right about almost feeling like we unbalance truth Dave Pallison had this idea that we unbalance truth to focus in on what the scriptures are telling us, and then we rebalance back together. So I'm not suggesting to you that we don't talk about individual sin or that the scriptures don't talk about it. But when we see Jesus mourning over a city's worth of sin, we, we stay in that moment with him. And we, 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 what seems like maybe an unbalance, we look deeply into what does it mean to have corporate, communal sin that reinforces each other. And this is partly why we try and teach through all of Scripture and why we have Sunday school, because other parts of Scripture rebalance that. 
right, and focus in on the individual level of sin. So, so I would just invite you, stay in there and consider the city's, the, the communal level of sin and how it works. So, so this is the city's measure of, of, of blindness. How does the king offer his peace? How does the king offer his peace? peace? Um, Luke first wants us to recognize that Jesus is the king. Uh, and you'll notice this, this first part, we see Jesus as the king in what seems like an inordinate amount of time describing his retrieval of a donkey. Did you notice that? Uh, tw- verse 28 to 35, Jesus gets a donkey, <laughs> which seems like a lot of time to take on that. Um, why? What, what is going on there? So a, a couple things. One, Luke is intentionally slowing down the pace of the narrative. We've had, we, we've, it's, John does something similar. Remember when Jesus washes the disciples' feet and we get details about Jesus putting the towel around his waist and sort of slow each, each movement. Part of what's happening is Luke wants us to slow down and see frame by frame what Jesus' final moments are like. Even everything to procuring a donkey to ride into his death. Jesus is moving toward his death and, and he, we don't want to rush and miss the intentional steps of Christ. The, the other part of this, though, is that what Jesus is doing, why we know he's king, is he's fulfilling the prophetic word out of Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah 9 reads, See, your king comes, uh, comes to you righteous, victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey. Uh, these, are, these are painstaking moments in which Luke wants us to notice Jesus is the king that God has promised. He is the one true king come to save his people. And as Jeremy mentioned, the disciples, the crowd, seems to recognize something of the moment. They understand. They're putting the pieces together on some level or another. They're thinking about the miracles that have taken place. They're noticing Jesus riding on a donkey. We don't have any other accounts of Jesus doing something like that. Something about the moment rises up to them, and they begin to lay their cloaks on the road before him. Uh, in, in Matthew and Mark's account, we didn't read it today, but as we have palms, they cut palm branches and um, begin to wave them and lay them on the road. And, and palms are not just sort of a random, uh, you know, happen to be close by, let me grab what's nearby. Uh, in the ancient world, they're tokens of glory, they're tokens of joy and triumph. Um, a king and conquerors would be welcomed with palm branches uh, to be strewn around and waved in the air. And so this is, this is a moment of the disciples recognizing this is the king. This is the one who will come to save. And, and this, this then leads to the next thing that we see. Uh, the, the crying out, the praising of the disciples. They quote Psalm 118. It's a royal psalm. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, they say. So Jesus is the king. Luke wants us to see if you're somebody here who's questioning, is Jesus the king? Luke is, wants to lay out for us, yes, yes, he is the one, the long-awaited king. And so he brings his peace. And, and how does he do that? Well, I just want to suggest to you three things we see Jesus do. Um, how does he bring his peace? The first is, his, it is, in, his, is in his honesty. Jesus deals in truth. Uh, you see, the, the Pharisees attempt to bring correction. Uh, they, they look to, they, 
in some sense, they're looking to share their blindness with Jesus. Uh, he, demanding that the praises be silent. And, but Jesus does not hesitate to tell them the truth. Uh, because the, 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 the disciples are onto something. They're onto the truth. And so Jesus rebukes them. The praise of the disciples is true. Uh, Jesus is the king. And Jesus wants the Pharisees to know they are right to call out to him to be saved. They are right to say that he bears the name of God himself. Uh, and the truth of Jesus, of who he is, is such that if, if Jerusalem fails to see it, creation itself will cry out and proclaim its truth. Here's how you know something is true. <laughs> creation itself will cry out if we are silent. The rocks will cry out and, and give him praise. Jesus deals in truth in the same way when he foretells the destruction of Jerusalem. He's pointing to what's true. If you turn from me, you will have no peace. So Jesus, Jesus lays out for them exactly what will happen. He does not shy away from honesty and truth. Apart from him, you will have no peace. And for some of you, that, that, that is what you need to know this morning. Apart from Jesus, you will have no peace. You will have no peace apart from him. So Jesus, Jesus deals in truth. And, and then Jesus moves from honesty to tears. Uh, verses 41 and 42. He, he stops before the city that will soon sentence him to death, and he's filled with sorrow and compassion. He weeps over the city. And, and you can imagine, uh, Jesus stands before this, this great city, and he hears the sounds of the city, he smells the smells of an ancient city, he sees the inner workings of the city, he sees the, the, the skyline, the beauty of the buildings, uh, and, and his heart is moved. These are his people. He's overwhelmed with grief and compassion because he knows the city is blind to him. He knows that they will reject him and tears begin to roll down his face. And, and the word that's indicated here is it's not just a silent tear cry. It's not just a silent crying. He's audibly weeping aloud. And this is the heart of God's compassion. Uh, Exodus 34 says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So the peace that God brings, the honesty he brings through Christ is not delivered in some sort of cool, indifferent, uh, divine act. I shall come and save these petty people. Christ, Christ's heart is full of compassion for us. He's attached himself to the sufferings of his people. And, and then thirdly, he, he gives himself. He speaks honestly. He's full of compassion, and he gives himself. His honesty and compassion meet in this. He, he doesn't turn away, like Jeremy said. He goes. He's both truthful and full of compassion, together at the same time. And this puts one foot in front of the other. Jesus moves into the city that will reject him. He doesn't turn away. He gives up his life out of love and compassion for a blind people. 
And so, brothers and sisters, as we think about what, where does this put us then, as we've watched Jesus move into the city with truth, compassion, and with his life, uh, we, we stand at the edge of Holy Week, looking down at the week ahead. And, and I, would, I would invite you, I would encourage you, what that is is an invitation to walk with Jesus through this week, to his death, and then into his resurrection. So, so first, Jesus is honest with us about ourselves. And we've said this already. There's no peace apart from him. Um, and, and that truth doesn't rest upon your ability to accept it or your willingness to accept it. Uh, we, we know <laughs> that those who are on the road crying out, Hosanna, will in, in a matter of moments be crying out, crucify him. The truth of, God, of God's love and his peace do not depend upon us, thank God. And you see the Fleming Rutledge quote there on your outline. Uh, this is part of what Palm Sunday does. The liturgy of Palm Sunday is set up to show you can say one thing one minute and the opposite it's next. And so Christ conf- confronts us with the truth of his peace that doesn't depend upon us. And so the question should come to us, where are you tempted to be like those disciples who one minute, sitting here on Sunday morning, cry Hosanna, and the next minute are rejecting Christ? Where are you being swayed by the crowds that would call you to reject Christ? Where are you being swayed to doubt that he alone gives you peace? Who are you listening to What social media account are you reading? What family member are you letting get into your heart and mind that is dissuading you that peace comes from Christ alone? That's the challenge that that Jesus presents with his honesty. But then he also, brothers and sisters, he weeps over us as well. Christ weeps over the blindness that we share in this city, in Montgomery County, in Philadelphia. And his heart is full of compassion for you. And and so maybe your moment to stay on leading into Monday, Thursday is just to know God is not angry with you. The heart of God is full of compassion for you. Some of you I know, your default mode is God is angry with me. And look at Jesus. His heart is full of compassionate tears over your life and over your family and over the city you live in. He has a heart of compassion towards you. He set his face toward you with truth and with tears. And that should move us then to to even consider Christ weeps over the atrocities we're seeing around the world. The heart of God is full of compassion. When you see images from Ukraine, Christ is weeping over the blindness that brings those things to pass. And so in the same way that you know he is full of compassion toward you, enter the heart of God as he has compassion on the death and destruction in this world. Our heart of God is broken. He moves near our brokenness and he weeps over it. And and then lastly, uh, this week, if nothing else, remind yourself that Christ gives his life for us. Christ gives his life for you. And and what that means, 
to, to go back to your genneagram, if you, if you looked at that and you're, you're hit with the weight of, of your family's history that feels like something, a burden you can never remove from yourself, and I'll just testify to you that, that's why I couldn't bring myself to even to, to show it because it, it has leveled me this week. My fa- and, and I should say, our families are full of joy and wonderful things too. <laughs> I, I've received so much goodness and, and joy and tradition from my family even as I've received the brokenness that's passed down from generation to generation, amen? I've received the, the, the blindness, the willful blindness to Christ that now I've inherited, whether I like it or not. And Christ gives his life to you, which means his death this week, his coming into the city of blindness, means that your family of origin doesn't determine your future. Uh, the city's measure of blindness that we live and breathe in is not our destiny, The life Christ given to you means that through him we can be spiritually reborn by the Holy Spirit into the family of Christ. And so the match of family name (laughs) does not define me and its brokenness. And therefore, by his grace, we can put off the patterns of willful blindness and be transformed. And by his grace, we can be a church that, that is like a new city in a world of blindness. And, and finally, what that means, brothers and sisters, is that we don't compartmentalize our broken pasts and say, I, let me just try and forget that. We now turn back by the power of the Spirit, by his grace, and Christ leads us to healing in those wounds that we inherit. And Christ leads us to healing in the ways that that we share, we've shared in blindness and learn blindness to him together. We don't compartmentalize our faith, but with Jesus now, the one who's full of truth and compassion, you can begin to know healing and freedom. So brothers and sisters, as we, as we look at Palm Sunday, we see Jesus who set his face to his death because he knows that on the other side of his death is life for us all. He sets his face to Jerusalem because he knows on the other side of his death, life will be given for us all. So I would invite you this week, and the worship team can come forward uh, as we close. I would invite you this week uh, to to sow sow into your heart and mind the, the vision of Christ walking into a city of blindness. Sow that thought into your heart and mind. Read over that scripture leading up to Thursday. Christ walks into the blindness of your family. He walks into the blindness of the workplace that you work in. And he knows that on the other side of that that journey into Jerusalem, he will offer you life. Let me uh, close in prayer. Lord, we, we thank you. You are the one who brings us truth. You are the one whose heart is full of compassion for us. And you are the one who gives your life for us. We give you all the glory. We give you all the praise. And we confess, Lord, that we can't open our eyes by ourselves. We need your grace. Would you help us, Lord, we pray. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.